0: Our American stories. The first state to recognize Christmas as a holiday was Louisiana in 1837. By 1860, only 13 states recognized Christmas as a legal holiday. Five years later, by 1865, that number had gone from 13 to 31. What happened? The Civil War happened. The nostalgic yearning for Christmas at home during the war happened. What also happened with the little gestures that occurred on the battlefield during unofficial Christmas truces between the blue and the gray. So after the war, one of the ways President Lincoln saw to reconcile the nation was through Christmas. In 1870, Christmas was made a national holiday. Let's now take a look and see what's under the hood of this story.
1: Sleigh bells ring, are
0: you listening?
2: Ah, Christmas. Up goes the tree, on go the lights. An exciting season of presents and parties only a Scrooge could hate. But where did all the traditions start? Why do we bring huge evergreen trees into our homes? How did Santa get the red suit, the sleigh, and the eight reindeer? And what about Rudolph? Today we are going to pull back the curtain to unveil the hidden history of our cherished Christmas holiday. These days cities and towns seem to be dressing up earlier and earlier for the Christmas season. There are Santas at every shopping mall from coast to coast and there are lights. Lots and lots of lights. We like lights. As little kids I think we all jumped in the family car and drove through different neighborhoods to see the lights. The first Christmas lights were invented in 1882 by Edison Company Vice President Edward Johnson. Later, General Electric offered a string of 24 bulbs for $12, which is equal to $280 today. This bright idea is often credited to a New England telephone worker.
1: The real inspiration came from his job where he worked for the telephone company, and it was, you know, the little light bulb was in the early telephone switchboards. That gave him the idea for what we now know as Christmas
3: lights.
2: The Christmas story is one we all know. After a rude refusal by a local innkeeper, Mary and Joseph bedded down in a barn in Bethlehem, where they gave birth to a son, the Son of God. Those are the biblical origins of Christmas, But centuries before Jesus walked the earth, early Europeans were celebrating light and birth in the darkest days of winter. Every December on the shortest day in the year, when the earth was tilted furthest from the sun, came the winter solstice. It marked the darkest day of the year, but also the time when the promise of longer days gave cause to celebrate. To honor the occasion, ancient Norse tribes held a 12-day festival they called, Yule.
4: You have the crops brought in, you have the meat being slaughtered. You slaughter some of the farm animals because you can't feed them during the dark days of winter. So there's a lot of meat on hand. The beer has been made. It's perfect time for a feast.
2: Fathers and sons dragged home the biggest log they could find and set it on fire. This Yule log burned for all 12 days of the feast and they brought evergreens, firs, and holly into their homes. Over the centuries the concept grew, and later it was co-opted into our modern Christmas tree custom. Today picking out a tree is a family tradition, and in any given year American farmers are growing 350 million trees on 15,000 Christmas tree farms. That's one Christmas tree for every man, woman and child in the country. Here's Nigel Manley, director of the Rox Estate Christmas Tree Farm in Bethlehem, New Hampshire. The biggest thing that
1: I've heard from customers is, particularly with the balsam fir, when you open the door when you come home from work, you can smell that tree in the house. And that scent is what makes Christmas for them. That's the biggest thing for the Christmas trees.
2: So what does any of this have to do with the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago? After all... That is where the story of Christmas all begins. But how do we know what we know about the birth of Jesus?
5: We actually have two different sources from the New Testament for the Nativity. We have the Gospel of Matthew, and we have the Gospel of Luke. They don't refer to one another, they may not even have known about each other, and they tell us two different sets of things about what happened for Jesus' birth. And what we tend to do is we put these two stories together to get a kind of full picture that we call the Nativity.
2: Matthew's Gospel gives us the star of Bethlehem and the wise men. And no, contrary to popular belief, there were not three of the wise men. The Bible only mentions that they brought three gifts for the baby Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But the exact number of wise men is not included in the scriptures.
5: There's a kind of symbolic value to these gifts. What they're doing is they're bringing really, really precious goods to honor this child with a very humble birth. And there's a a message there about how we need to recognize this birth isn't really humble at all because this is a king being born.
2: This is the first example of Christmas gift-giving. But nowhere in the New Testament is it recorded when this birth actually happened. One of the few things that all scholars seem to agree on is that Jesus wasn't born in the wintertime. Now I know that's a terrible thing to say, but let me explain. The early followers of Jesus Christ weren't concerned with marking his birthday, partially because they expected his imminent return. So why bother creating a birthday? But this didn't prevent early Christian scholars and present-day historians from trying to speculate when he was born. The one thing you will get from their estimates on Christ's birth is that they all occur in the springtime. And that makes a great deal of sense, because one of the few details you'll find in the Gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus Christ is that it was at a time when the shepherds were with their flocks in the fields. That could not have been in December, because what we do know about the traditions of ancient Judea is that at that time shepherds took their flocks indoors so they wouldn't get cold at night, starting in November, and they wouldn't bring them back out again until March so how did Jesus end up with a birthday on December 25th long before Jesus was born the Romans celebrated many pagan holidays particularly in December and these end-of-year festivities set the stage for our modern Christmas holiday
0: this is our American stories more on how Christmas came to be as an American celebration and our national holiday After these messages. This is our American Stories. And we're answering the question, why do we celebrate Christmas on December 25th? Let's pick up where we left off.
1: One Roman holiday was Saturnalia, which began on December 17th and was a series of parties that would last anywhere from three to five or maybe seven days. You can think of it as sort of a, a big office party, but in togas.
2: And only three laws governed Romans during the holiday. Number one, all businesses should be closed except bakeries, cookeries and those that tend to sport and solace and delight. Number two, anger, resentment and threats are strictly forbidden. Number three, no discourse shall either be composed or delivered except it be witty and lusty, conducing to mirth and jollity.
6: The second party is New Year's. It was a five-day party and it was quite enjoyable as well and then in between Saturnalia and New Year's there was already a birthday celebration for a Roman related God on December 25th
2: that God Mithras was born and honored on December 25th after Christianity became Rome's official religion in the fourth century leaders chose to absorb pagan traditions rather than outlaw them But in a prelude to those who complain today about what a shame it is that we don't celebrate Christmas the way they used to, that Christmas has been commercialized. Well, 16 centuries ago, Archbishop Gregory of Constantinople urged that the Christmas celebration be conducted after a heavenly and not an earthly manner, and he warned his congregants against feasting to excess, dancing, and crowning the doors. But as the church continued to absorb various ancient traditions, what emerged were two experiences of Christmas, one sacred and one secular. Each of these Christmases also had their own separate music, just like we have today.
5: You have hymns in the church, they're sacred music, and they're sung in Latin. You find gradually the development in the 12th century of Christmas carols. And Christmas carols are sung in the vernacular. They're not in Latin. They're languages everybody knows. And people enjoy these songs, and people sing them together. And very quickly, there gets to be the tradition of not singing these songs in church.
2: But medieval caroling was not just about caroling. It was about drinking. At every door, revelers begged for a gulp from the household punch bowl, getting drunker with every note they sang.
5: So, what Christmas looks like doesn't look an awful lot like a sort of solemn, biblically oriented holiday. It looks like something else. It looks like it's always looked, frankly, it's this kind of festival of celebration and revelry.
2: All of this celebration and merriment didn't sit well, especially after the Protestant Reformation. One of the hallmarks of Martin Luther's message was to clear away from the entire church calendar all the feasts and saints days and Christmas was one of the many feast days in the Catholic Church and Luther tried to get rid of almost all of them but there were just too many people who enjoyed St. Nick's December 6th feast day besides feasting this day also involved gift giving so what Martin Luther suggested was this instead of telling kids about St. Nicholas bringing gifts they would tell the kids that the gifts were brought by the Christ child himself. How do you say Christ child in Luther's German language? Christ Kindle. That's right, Christ Kindle. Well, Luther's attempts failed, but Christ Kindle got swallowed up by Christmas and got transformed into Kris Kringle. Yet another endearing name for the big man in the red suit. So, why did Luther declare a war on Christmas? He did because it wasn't mentioned in the Bible. One of the messages of the Reformation was go back to the Bible. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. Part of the logic behind that argument was expressed by an American Puritan of a later generation. Ezra Stiles, who was one of the first presidents of Yale College, who said this, Had it been the will of Christ that the anniversary of his nativity should have been celebrated, He would have at least let us know the day. By the 17th century, Christian reformers were losing patience with the rowdier Christmas traditions. They decided to ban Christmas altogether.
5: There's a kind of backlash against Christmas. Among Protestant groups, you find a desire to not celebrate Christmas a repudiation of Christmas as kind of a Catholic invention, frankly, something that the Catholic Church had allowed happen. In
2: 1652, England banned Christmas. Ministers who preached about the nativity on Christmas day could be imprisoned. Churches risked fines if they tried to decorate their buildings. The law said that shops must stay open on Christmas as if it were any other business day. Now this was the law, but nobody said it was popular. Although people believed the Puritans had a lot of religious substance on their side, they enjoyed Christmas. But Christmas would have an equally hard time in New England during the early 17th century. Pious settlers from England looked upon Christmas with suspicion. The newly formed Puritan colony of Massachusetts wanted no part of the holiday. And in 1659, it banned Christmas too.
4: The Puritans of New England were very well aware of the pagan associations with the celebrations of the winter solstice. And they wished to avoid any kind of association with that. One Puritan commentator said that Christmas was chastity's shipwreck. And another one in Boston said that men did more dishonor to Christ on the 12 days of Christmas than they did the entire 12 months of the year.
2: During the Revolutionary War, America had still not yet embraced Christmas, which in one instance was a blessing. One of the key and most inspiring battles of the Revolution was the Battle of Trenton, This battle has been immortalized in the famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware River as he boldly stands at the front of the boat next to an American flag. Washington made that crossing on Christmas of 1776. One of the primary reasons that the Americans were able to prevail was because they surprised the Hessians, the German mercenaries who worked for the British, and the British at Trenton, New Jersey. Because they were all drunk, they had been celebrating Christmas, but the Americans did not. As the American colonies spread down throughout the southern coast, the settlers were less enthusiastic about banning Christmas, because a great many of them were Catholic immigrants. And once Protestants got exposed to Christmas, they found it very attractive. By the mid-1700s, they had adopted many of their European Christmas traditions, keeping the rowdy Christmas behavior of the past alive.
7: Early Republic records are full of instances where people in, you know, a gentleman's home in Virginia, they're having a nice Christmas dinner when the local rowdies get word of it and pound on the door and they go through this very ancient ritual of give us some food and drink or we're going to throw rocks through your windows. And so there's both those traditions are, are still there.
2: But as America matured, so did its Christmas customs
1: respectable middle-class Americans wanted to take the rowdy Christmas the public Christmas that took place outdoors and move it indoors I mean, these are people who had property they were afraid of destruction they were afraid of losing things that they own so they want to take this public rowdy event and take it from the streets and bring it into the home and make the focus of Christmas around the family around this private gathering that takes place in the house
2: This effort was most deliberate and most successful in rapidly expanding New York City. The city that never sleeps has shaped the modern secular Christmas more than any other city in the world. And it's really because of the efforts of two very gifted New Yorkers who lived there in the 1800s. They would reinvent Old World Christmas customs to create our modern American holiday and they would mold our image of jolly old St. Nick.
1: New York in the 1800s was a city that was alive with change. The population was booming. There was new industry. There were the new stores that were growing up that provided the foundation for what became the commercialization of Christmas. But it was not only a city that was alive with change, it was also a city that was alive with new ideas.
2: Clement Clark Moore a New York professor of Oriental and Greek literature, who helped create New York's Chelsea neighborhood and designed St. Peter's Episcopal Church, had an idea that would change Christmas forever. In 1822, he wrote a 56-line poem he called A Visit from St. Nicholas, better known today as The Night Before Christmas. Almost single-handedly, he created the modern American version of Christmas.
0: And when we come back, more on the story of Christmas in America and how it came to be. This is Our American Stories. For all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. And that's ouramericannetwork.org. This is our American stories. And by the way, that great keyboard playing is a whole story to that keyboard playing in Charlie Brown's Christmas and our annual Charlie Brown Christmas story will play as it always does during the Christmas season several times. But back to the story of Christmas and how it came to be here in America. We ended our last segment hearing about how a New York intellectual named Clement Clark Moore wrote the night before Christmas. A poem that would forever enshrine the characteristics of Santa Claus. Let's pick it up from there.
4: What's really interesting about Moore's poem is it distilled various traditions in the early 19th century and put them all together, and added his own Moore's own imaginings. Moore's poem becomes a path-breaking moment, a watershed and how Christmas is celebrated.
2: Moore's subject was Santa, as we know him today. His inspiration? Two legendary Christmas figures of the Old World. One was Saint Nicholas, a 4th century bishop renowned for gift-giving, legendary for leaving presents in stockings. The other was Sinterklaas, the Dutch version of Saint Nicholas. Sinterklaas had merged a bit with Odin, the Norse pagan
7: god of Yule, who flew through the sky on an eight-legged horse. Before the mid-19th century, Santa Claus comes in different shapes and sizes. He arrives you know, on a boat, on a horse, uh, on a sleigh, and all of that sort of codified and narrowed down in America, largely in New York City.
2: Both Old World legends were rich in details, many of which Moore chose to leave out. One omission was a bizarre, dark, devil-like sidekick of Saint Nicholas named Krampus, or Black Peter. And Krampus brought a switch to punish naughty children, or worse.
6: He had horns, long red tongue covered with fur, tail, and hoof. And he would come into the room right after St. Nicholas. And one scene in particular shows two little boys cowering. Because outside the door is this devil figure, Krampus.
2: But Clement Clark Moore's St. Nick embodied only good. Moore introduced several new characteristics for Santa. He dressed him in American fur, gave him a pipe, a huge belt, and portrayed him not as a priest, but a jolly dimpled elf with a twinkle in his eye. On his back he toted a sack full of toys for the children of the house. Moore also gave him a sleigh that he flew through the sky led not by a horse but by eight reindeer
8: but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny
2: reindeer (laughs) each with its own name
8: now dasher now dancer now prancer and vixen on comet on
2: cupid on danda and Blitzen. Moore's poem, which has become the most famous poem in the English language, enthralled 19th century Americans. It created a new kind of Christmas, neither rowdy nor religious, but centered on home and family. In the decades that followed, artists would expand on Moore's imagery, but his would be the vision that would endure.
5: One
1: interesting thing about the poem is that book editors actually changed the last line. In Moore's original version it was, happy Christmas to all and to all a good night. Most books change happy to merry.
2: As iconic as Clement Clark Moore's Santa was, he still wasn't the fully formed Kris Kringle we know today. His Santa had no North Pole workshop, no elves, no letters from kids, and no naughty and nice list. Where did these details come from? The credit goes to another New Yorker, illustrator Thomas Nast. He took more Santa and produced the definitive version for generations to come.
1: Thomas Nast is one of the great illustrators of the 19th century. A lot of the images that we see today, he created. When you think about the donkey and the elephant for the Democratic and Republican party, he created it. The image of Uncle Sam that we've all come to know is a creation of Thomas Nast. And he also is the person who gave us our modern version of Santa Claus. In
2: 1862, one of America's major magazines, Harper's Weekly, commissioned Nast to draw its Christmas illustrations. He transformed the Moore's jolly old elf into someone taller and grander.
7: So he becomes your grandfather. Gives him the full-flowing white beard, which is the image of a wealthy person in in the Victorian uh, world. Um, He was wearing a red coat with white trim, black boots, the buckled belt, the pipe. Nass' image
2: of Santa became indelible, and with every Christmas grew richer in its detail. Santa, one could say, has become America's national saint.
7: Nass does this year after year. He creates lots of the things we associate with Santa Claus the list of naughty and nice living at the North Pole and that becomes the image of Santa Claus and by the mid 19th century
2: the Christmas tree a variation of the ancient Norse custom became the centerpiece to the family-oriented American Christmas all because of one picture on December 23rd 1848 the London News published an image of the young Queen Victoria and Prince Albert with their family assembled around a Christmas tree. Part of Albert's German tradition, England fell in love with it immediately.
7: Two years later this same image of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert was republished in a very popular American magazine with a couple of alterations. They took out Queen Victoria's crown and took off Prince Albert's mustache so that they looked a little bit more American and it was a way of sort of essentially telling middle-class Americans who bought this magazine that this would be a tradition, this is a tradition worthy of your home.
2: The Christmas tree had officially arrived in America. By 1856, President Franklin Pierce was putting one in the White House. In 1939, copywriter Robert L. May was creating a whole new holiday icon, a red-nosed reindeer named Rudolph.
7: The Rudolph figure is created for Montgomery Ward Department Store in Chicago, and they want to have essentially kind of a handout, a Christmas favor, if you will. So he writes a 38-page pamphlet in, in verse about this woebegone reindeer. Originally it calls him Rolo the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Towards the end there, they decide they need something a little more punch, so it becomes Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And it's a huge hit.
2: Ten years later in 1949, May's brother-in-law, songwriter Johnny Marks, set the Rudolph poem to music.
3: He wrote the song and gave it to Gene Autry and Gene Autry didn't like it. He didn't even want to record it. And Gene Autry's wife said, no, this is a good song, you need to record it.
8: You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen, but do you recall The most famous reindeer of all? Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer
2: Autry finally agreed to record the song But only as a b-side to one of his records It became the biggest hit of Autry's career All of the other reindeer
8: Used to laugh and call him names they
0: never And this them. is Our American oh, Stories. And by the way, that's why you listen to your games. wife. Gene Autry listened to his wife. Smart man. And by the way, imagine Rollo the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> <laughs> what a mistake. When we come back, chock full of information. That's what we are here on this show. Answers to your questions. I know I'm learning a lot. Thanks, Hengler, for putting this together. Greg, as always, does a great job on these pieces. One last segment about all the things you didn't know about Christmas and how Christmas, as we know it and celebrate it, came to be. This is Our American Stories. American Stories are our special broadcast on how Christmas came to be in this country. And I've learned a lot, and I know you have too. And now it's time to close out the hour, the final chapter in this story.
2: Another classic Christmas song from around the same time was written by a Jewish immigrant from Russia, Irving Berlin, and sung by Bing Crosby. This Christmas song is the most beloved and celebrated song ever written. It's a song that was heard for the very first time on Christmas 1941, just 18 days after Pearl Harbor was bombed. The song is White Christmas.
1: I'm dreaming of a white Christmas just like the one
7: So the song doesn't really catch on. It's the spring of 1942. We've just gone to war, but it catches on in the fall of '42, which is when America is really approaching its one-year mark of being at war, and these now hundreds of thousands, soon to be millions of G.Is, are going to be spending their first Christmas away from home. And that's where that song has that real heartstring pulling nostalgic feel to it, that the record sales just skyrocket in October, November, December of uh, 1942.
2: White Christmas is the most successful single ever released, and it has been for more than 60 years. According to the Guinness World Records, the version sung by Bing Crosby is the best-selling single of all time, with estimated sales in excess of 100 million copies worldwide. The homespun values at the heart of White Christmas were what Americans at home and those fighting abroad longed for, in 1946, Americans found those values in the reigning classic of all Christmas-themed movies, It's a Wonderful Life.
0: It's Wonderful Life started life uh, as a short story called The Greatest Gift by uh, Philip Van Doren Stern. And it wound up in the hands of Frank Capra, who had just come back from World War II, uh, where he had shot the Why We Fight series of, of propaganda
2: films for the U.S. Army. The Oscar-winning director crafted a sentimental masterpiece about a man named George Bailey. A man who sees the world as it would be had he never been born.
5: Mother, what do you
3: want? Mother, this this is George. I I thought sure you'd remember him
2: the impact this movie has had on the movie industry can be seen in every steven spielberg film for inspiration spielberg has said that he watches it's a wonderful life before starting any new film and whenever he goes on location for a new film he takes along a copy of it's a wonderful life to show his cast how movies should be made and it also must be said the kiss between jimmy stewart and donna reed is hands-down the greatest kiss in movie-making history.
8: Now, you listen to me. I don't want any plastics, I don't want any ground floors, and I don't want to get married ever to anyone. You understand that? I want to do what I
3: want to do. And you're... And you're...
4: George, George, George.
2: The broadcast success of It's a Wonderful Life proved that Christmas and television were a powerful combination. By the 1960s, baby boomers were enjoying a golden age of holiday TV.
5: There was a golden age of Christmas specials that began about in the mid-60s and went into the mid-70s. These specials were aimed specifically at children, although were sophisticated enough to entertain the adults that were in the room.
2: After Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol in 1962 came a flurry of animated specials, But in 1965, one Christmas special featuring a little round-headed kid seeking the true meaning of Christmas topped them all. Here's Lee Mendelson, the executive producer for A Charlie Brown Christmas. In
3: 1965, we got a call from the McCann Erickson advertising agency who represented Coca-Cola. They said, have you and Mr. Schultz ever thought of doing a Charlie Brown Christmas show? And I lied and said, absolutely. So I called uh, Sparky, our nickname for Mr. Schultz, and said, um, I think I just sold a Charlie Brown Christmas. And he said, what's that? And I said, it's something you're going to write tomorrow.
2: Mendelssohn and animator Bill Melendez had to create an animated special in just six months. They made radical creative choices, like using child actors for the voices. Here's Peter Robbins, the voice of Charlie Brown. I was
8: nine years old. They were eight years old, seven years old. We are all in one recording studio, bouncing off the walls, playing with the drums and stuff, because it was a recording studio where, like, the Doors recorded their albums.
3: The work progressed, but time was running out. We did end up finishing it just like a week before it went on the air. Then we took it to CBS, and the three fellows there didn't like it at all, and they said, we're going to have to run it because it's scheduled for four days from now but you know nice try but it it just doesn't work so as we went through these minefields it's amazing it ever even got on the air
2: one issue that concerned everyone was schultz's insistence that the show quote the bible
3: one of us said you know do you really think we can you know animate a kid reading from the bible you think we can get get this through and i remember he said at the time well if we don't do it who will
7: who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them.
3: Bill staged it in a very, very simple format.
7: For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord.
3: And the way that wonderful actor, Chris Shea, read it,
7: And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men.
3: It became, you know, one of the really indelible moments, probably in animated history.
7: That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie
4: Brown.
3: Then,
2: in 1983, author and humorist Gene Shepard immortalized his childhood in an autobiographical account of one boy's Christmas. Here's screenwriter of The Christmas Story and the voice of Ralphie as an adult, Gene Shepard, telling us about his real-life childhood encounter with Santa that inspired the most memorable scene in the movie.
8: You know I've been thinking for weeks what I wanted for Christmas. I figured the best thing to do is to tell Santa Claus about that. And I looked up at that Santa Claus and had these big watery blue eyes and a huge beard and all that. He's looking at me right in the eye. And he was so impressive that my mind went blank. It's like if all of a sudden you're, you're sitting on the president's lap and he says what would you like me to pass in legislation, sonny? I mean, your mind's going to go blank. You can't remember any of this stuff. And so at that point, Santa Claus looked at me and he says, All right, (laughs) how about a football, kid?
2: How about a nice uh, football? A
8: football. I wanted a BB gun. (laughs) So he pushed me off his lap, and this elf grabbed me and threw me down a slide that went down into the snow. And I played there for a minute, and I knew but i was not a fit person to talk to the great santa claus was obviously a star
2: these days the glow from our holiday lights and television sets help banish the cold dark winter nights the way the yule logs and bonfires once did a thousand years ago
4: people make up holidays traditions are invented but there are uses for those cultural tropes that stay with us for centuries. There's something about the deeper meaning there that is singing to our bones and we hear it and we think, yes, that's the tradition and that's what I want to celebrate.
2: For as long as we can remember, we bring in our greens and turn on the lights. We hang our stockings and sing our carols, in church and in the streets, amidst the chaos. We even find time to rejoice at the birth of a child, 2,000 years ago. Something touches America somewhere down deep in his
8: belly button about Christmas. He can't really explain what it is about Christmas that he enjoys so much. <laughs> he just knows that when all those red and green lights go up, you know, on the street and you see Santa Clauses walking around with their bells, if something happens to you, you enjoy it. Now, you can be cynical all you want, but you still enjoy
2: it. From our family at Our American Stories We'd like to say to you and yours Merry Christmas to you all And to all A good night
0: And this is Our American Stories And again, that's all Greg Hengler And all the folks he works with Putting these great pieces together And by the way, one thing that really Struck me through the piece And I'm sure you had your favorite But Irving Berlin Was a Jewish man And he was from Russia. And this one man gave us two great American standards. A Russian wrote God Bless America and a Jew wrote White Christmas. And this truly is the most American thing about America. That I could say a sentence like that. We can only say something like that in this great country. And so we talk about Christmas. We talk about America here on Our American Stories. Have a blessed Christmas. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do that's ouramericannetwork.org Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now and then, as often as possible, we like to dig into the great American stories and into American history. And on this day in history, well, the Wright brothers performed their first flight, manned flight, and the first in world history in 1903. It was near Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Orville and Wilbur Wright made that first successful flight in history of a self-propelled, heavier-than-air aircraft. Orville piloted the gasoline-powered, propeller-driven biplane. And that historic Wright Brothers aircraft of 1903 is on permanent display. And what a marvel it is. Too many people just walk right by it at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. But you've got to put yourself back in that place. And we're going to do that for the next hour with the help of a a fairly decent historian named David McCulloch and a guy who had a little bit of knowledge about flying, Neil Armstrong. But let's put us back in that America first. Because in 1899, when these guys started to tinker with the idea of being the first to get into flight, and by the way, every scientist in the world forever had been thinking about this, forever how to fly, And these guys did it first. So they're tinkering in 1899 in Akron. They're bicycle shop owners. Less than 3% of Americans had electricity in their homes. Less than 3% had a telephone. And there were only 8,000 gas-powered automobiles in the entire country. And yet few men, if any, had more of an impact on the 20th century than these two unlikely innovators. Actually, let's correct that. Because as we will learn from David McCulloch in the coming hour, these two men were actually perfectly situated for the task at hand. And they again accomplished what scientists, innovators, dreamers throughout the centuries hadn't. They taught man how to fly. This is a uniquely American story and a story about American exceptionalism, which is what almost every David McCulloch book is about. And the Wright brothers is his latest. But to begin, let's start with Neil Armstrong. The first American to walk on the moon. And one of our great aviators talking about those days in Kitty Hawk. Those three days leading up to this historic achievement by the Wright brothers. Here is Neil Armstrong himself.
6: They took the flyer up on the side of Big Kill Devil Hill on a slope of nine degrees, dead nine degrees down, dead into the... Uh, prevailing wind uh, So they could take advantage of a downhill takeoff roll Will won the coin flip uh, Laid down on the wing started the engine accelerated down the rail After about 45-foot roll the flyer lifted but will pulled it back a little too much and stalled and settled into the wind went one wing down some structural damage after uh, a flight of about 150 feet. Because the takeoff was downhill, because the landing was at a lower altitude than the takeoff point, and because the landing was less than elegant, the brothers considered it to be unsuccessful. But it certainly was the first flight. They repaired the flyer and waited for a good wind. Three days later, December 17th that's the day we all remember and we celebrate four successful flights were completed from a level takeoff over level ground into a stiff wind or made the first flight uh, after the cone flip, 120 feet in 12 seconds will the last 852 feet in 59 seconds Each was carefully measured and recorded. The average speed through the air was 31 miles per hour with a ground speed of about 10 miles per hour. The flyer was a bit unstable and the controls were very sensitive. Each of the four flights ended because of an unintended contact with the ground. But each flight they became more proficient in their control of the machine.
0: How about that? The first man to walk on the moon, talking with incredible reverence about the first men to fly. And by the way, these two men, as you'll learn later, are these three men, were born in the same county, in the same state, along with another aviator of great repute, John Glenn, Three guys, one county. What's in that water? Well, we're going to talk about David McCulloch's great book when we come back. But I wanted to talk a little about Hillsdale College, who's bringing us this hour and who is sponsoring our This Days in History. And there is no better and finer place to send a child. Actually, I want to go back and go to school there. Because every time I visit, and I visit a couple of weeks out of the year, I learn more there than I did in law school. Uh, And from the kids. The kids are exceptional. And if you want to study the liberal arts, if you want to study history, if you want to study things that are beautiful, if you want to study the divine, well, there's no better place to go. And also, so many of the courses are available online, so you don't have to come to Hillsdale. Hillsdale will come to you. This is Lee Habib. When we come back, the great David McCulloch. On the Wright Brothers, on this day in history, the first in flight.
5: Down a dirty road
3: Started out All alone And the sun went down As across the hill And the town lit up The world got still The rocks might melt
0: and the sea may blur. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're talking about the Wright Brothers for the hour, because in this day in history, all well, these men became the first men in flight. And we're going to pick up with David McCulloch, who I think has written the best book on the Wright Brothers. Now, I have to put it up there with Up in the Air, which is also terrific. I think that came out in 2002 or three. Read either one. No, read both. It's worth it. Well, it turns out David McCulloch knew nothing much about the Wright brothers at all, just about what we knew, just about what I just talked about. A couple of guys in Kitty Hawk, and boom, they're up in the air. Here's David McCulloch talking about why the more he learned about them, the more he got interested in writing about them.
9: I knew next to nothing about them. I knew what most all of us receive uh, quickly in about 10-minute flash of light on the subject in a high school history or whatever. And when I began to read about them, because I was surprised and fascinated by the fact that they had a very major part of their story take place in France, I couldn't get over how much there was to them uh, individually and uh, as a unit, as it were. And what a it really extraordinary and I think inspiring human story they are Um, and very very representative of something particularly and I think proudly American.
0: Here McCulloch talks about that uniquely American character of these two men and it had a lot to do with their vision and that these men had no sense that they couldn't do what they were trying to do
9: well they they had a an objective a purpose which they considered to be this sounds like a bad pun a high purpose and they set their minds to achieve it and to do it um, with no sense that there, there was any reason why they couldn't do it because as you just read, they didn't have any money, they didn't have any political contacts, they didn't have a great university or a foundation behind them. But they thought they could figure out what is, how it is that birds can soar, not just fly, but soar. Uh, birds that get up there and just hang in the air uh, for what seems hours at a time in some cases. And they, those birds are riding the wind. They're not flapping their wings. They're not using any power of their own. But they know how to ride with the wind the way um, people know how to ride with, on the water. And the, the, the big question was, how do they do that? And they had been making bicycles and selling bicycles in their little shop in Dayton, Ohio. And, of course, bicycling is about balance, equilibrium.
0: And that balance factor, while the world was working on power, they were focused on balance. Here was one more aspect in these men's lives that intrigued McCulloch. They weren't theorists. They didn't simply study things. They actually did them.
9: And the other very important fact that they realized is that it isn't enough just to invent, theoretically, or invent, in fact, a machine that might fly on its own, on its own power, but to know how to do it, to know how to fly. Just as if you made a bicycle, you can't just say, here's the bicycle, but you don't know how to ride it. And the only way to learn to ride a bicycle is to ride the bicycle. Uh, Wilbur Wright used the um, example of you were trying to train an unruly horse, a wild horse. There were two approaches. One is you could sit on the fence and take notes, and then after your notes are complete, retire to a comfortable chair and write a paper on how to tame a wild horse. The other way to do it is to get on the horse and ride it. So they didn't just invent the airplane. They, They learned, as no one ever knew before, how to fly it. And that means riding with the wind and adjusting, having wings that will do the necessary adjustments uh, that will make it possible to stay in the air.
0: They were do-it-yourselfers and classic tinkerers, these two brothers. Here's David McCulloch talking about Wilbur Wright, the real genius of the family.
9: I think Wilbur, unquestionably, was a genius. And while Orville was very uh, inventive, and mechanically, uh, in, uh, clever. Uh, he wasn't. He didn't have the mind that Wilbur did. And Wilbur was the leader. He was the big brother, the older brother by four, almost five years. And Wilbur, Wilbur could have done anything. And in any field, he was all set to go t- to Yale. And he thought he wanted to be a teacher or a professor, but he got hit in the teeth uh, with a hockey stick in a hockey game when he was about 18 that knocked out all of his front teeth, upper front teeth, left him in terrible pain. And he slipped into a strange and unfortunate, but turns out very fortunate for all of us, period where he imposed uh, a seclusion on himself, isolation at home. And during that period, it was during that period that he began to really read, and read with not just uh, energy and concentration, but read about everything. In a way, he got his own liberal arts education on his own at home, and with an intensity that he probably wouldn't have achieved had he gone to college, because there'd be so many other things going on.
0: Homeschoolers. How about that? Before everybody even knew that was such a term. It turns out what also makes this story uniquely American is that the Wright brothers didn't come from a family of means at all. And yet their class, their status, did not deter them from dreaming big dreams or educating themselves in every aspect of life and the liberal arts as if they'd gone to, let's just say, Oxford. Here's David McCulloch again.
9: They had no indoor plumbing. They had no telephone. None of that. But they had books, books a plenty. And the father insisted that they read and read about everything. And he insisted that they learn how to use the English language. He insisted that their handwriting be not only legible, but that they their vocabulary was it was wide. and and they and they were there use of verbs and adjectives and, and syntax and all that, it was as if they were having a, a magnificent English professor all through their lives. And this played a huge part in their, the success that they had because they had no trouble expressing themselves effectively and gaining the respect of people eventually.
0: It turns out that when they finally do get up in flight on this day in history, well, no one believes them. They actually get up there, they do this incredible thing, and actually, well, one guy did. A beekeeper who actually was a writer. And, well, take a listen to this story as only David
9: McCulloch can tell it. It's, one of the, it's an amazing story. The, the little guy named Amos Root who made equipment for beekeepers and made quite a sizable sum of money, but who was interested in everything, got wind, heard about these brothers over in Dayton. He was in Ohio, up in northeastern Ohio. And he went down to see what they were doing and saw that this was it, clearly. And he wrote a superb article describing the flight that he saw. It wasn't only very descriptive, it was very accurate, and and of considerable length. The first full, accurate, fair reporting of this phenomenon that changed history was written by a beekeeper, published in his little newspaper. He then sent it to Scientific American, saying, you're free to publish this at no charge, and they just dismissed it as the writings of some wacko out in Ohio the, um, the arrogance the uh, superiority of those who were in the know again and again in the government in, in uh, ger- journalism was almost comical hey how about that? Is a new theme journalists are arrogant
0: what a shock and the government a way to hear this story when we come back after the break about what our own government did When the Wright brothers insisted we might need to take a look at this new technology. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Today, this day in history, the Wright brothers, well, the first men to fly. This is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, the Wright brothers were the first in flight back in 1903. And what we've learned so far about this uniquely American story, with the help of David McCulloch and earlier, Neil Armstrong, is that these guys were do-it-yourselfers. They came from nothing. They taught themselves everything. And they learned by trial and error, mostly. They were tinkerers. They were hobbyists while the world's most serious inventors, including Samuel Langley, who was the head of the Smithsonian and had tens and thousands of dollars, which was real money back in 1903, to launch his own aircraft. These guys were out in Kitty Hawk and in Akron tinkering amongst themselves. They started in 1899, and they got to flight by 1903. Crazy. They did it in four years. Well, we heard before about how the journalists didn't believe that two, well, two yokels from Akron could have done this. I mean, why they didn't have a Ph.D. from some fancy college. Well, it turns out our own government officials weren't real keen. Here's David McCulloch.
9: Our federal government people wouldn't even get on the train and ride out and take a look when the Wrights offered to bring their machine to Washington to demonstrate. No, not interested. They had their... Door slammed in their face about three or four times, and they really. And then a delegation of French officers from from Paris, from France, showed up in Dayton, like what they were able to determine, and said, "You bring the, your plane over to France, demonstrate for us in public what you can do, and we'll buy your machine."
0: So imagine that they asked our own government officials to come to and they go, nah. They say, hey, we'll bring the plane to you. Nah. And it's the French who actually have an interest. Well, it turns out they end up going to France. Well, Wilbur does. And what a reception he got. They loved Wilbur. They loved his Americanness. They loved his character. Again, here's David McCulloch.
9: Biggest hero, most popular American in France, since Benjamin Franklin, uh, they loved him, they adored him, and, and the fact that he spoke no French seemed to make him even more popular because he was so American. They wanted the American to act like an American, and uh, his modesty, his attention to uh, hard work his his uh, his honesty his character. This this is largely a story about character. Character counts again and again and again. And sometimes you wonder, how were they able to do it?
0: Yep, and it's interesting, at one particular point in the book, we learn that these guys, when they're in Kitty Hawk, are getting attacked by swarms of mosquitoes. And that's what really amazed McCulloch. You could tell in the book he spent so much time going back to those mosquitoes because it was swarms of them. Meanwhile, all the locals in Kitty Hawk are watching these two guys pretending to be birds on the dunes, and they thought these two guys were just crazy. Well, there's a great story about these brothers and their character, and here's McCulloch telling, I think, the best part of this story. These guys weren't in it for the money, and they weren't in it for the adulation or the fame.
9: Uh, When finally they were asked to come and demonstrate the machine, out here at Fort Myer uh, for the government and Orville put on the demonstrations and Wilbur was assisting him as his guy on the ground. Thousands of big shots from the government, from the cabinet, from the different departments, all flooded across, so went across the river, across the Potomac, Fort Myer, to see the phenomenon with their own eyes and if the wind wasn't right it wasn't just right uh they wouldn't fly didn't bother them in the slightest that these people had been kept waiting for hours and then they never flew but that wasn't why they were in it they weren't in it to become famous or to become rich they were in it to do it right and their attention to detail and their they 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 not only didn't like the limelight they tried to avoid it whenever possible but eventually They did fly. They broke every record that had ever been broken, including many of their own, right over here. And uh, it was a thrilling thing until Orville had a terrible crash in which a young Army officer named Selfridge was killed. The first uh, fatality in aviation ever, right here uh, across the river.
0: Yeah, These guys were doing dangerous work, and that's the other uniquely American aspect of this. They didn't want other people to fly this plane. They wanted to fly the plane. That was part of the fun. These guys were daredevils. Indeed, they were, they were the first test pilots. They were the precursor to Chuck Yeager. These were the original test pilots. They didn't even know there was such a thing. Here's David McCulloch talking about the dangerous nature
9: of this work. Every time they went up, and they would go up 50 to 100 times in a year, they had a very good chance of being killed. And that, for that reason, they never flew together. They could take other people up. There was two men um, plane, two women, man and woman plane. When Catherine went up uh, with Wilbur in France, but they they never, the two brothers never went up together because if one got killed, the other would be still alive to carry on with the mission.
0: Think about that. I mean, that's dangerous work. These guys knew. And uh, at one point, there was a crash, and Orville was seriously hurt, seriously injured. In fact, if it weren't for the Wright brothers' sister, uh, there's a question about whether Orville would have made it. And so she tended to Orville. Wilbur tended to the project of the brothers not wanting to let his brother down, actually, to keep on going. That's how Orville would have wanted it. McCulloch believes strongly that the Wright brothers' Well, this doesn't, wasn't just a distinctly American story. It was a distinctly Midwestern American story. And he drew parallels to another great Midwesterner, one he wrote about, McCulloch did, Harry Truman. And McCulloch also talks about the importance of perseverance and the ability to take risks, and most importantly, the ability to handle failure.
9: I kept feeling, as I was writing this book, uh, clear... Uh, linkages or, or similarities to Harry Truman. Um, neither Truman never went to college. They never went to college. Truman faced adversity again and again in his life, as did they. Truman failed many times in many ways, but never let that defeat him or discourage him completely. So did they. I think how you handle failure, how you uh, handle a, a sudden unexpected blow that knocks you down is crucial, not only to um, leadership, but to success.
0: This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We are talking about the Wright brothers for the hour. And we're, well, we're being given a great history lesson by the great David McCulloch. And we're also lucky to have heard from, well, Neil Armstrong. And again, these two great pioneers of space travel and air travel are their two stories, are two of the greatest. We will do an hour on Neil Armstrong when we get to his day of birth. When we come back, we're going to complete this story of the Wright brothers being the first in flight. And again, this day in history is brought to you by our great sponsor, Hillsdale College, the only place to go to school in America and learn i believe a classical liberal arts education and i mean starting with aristotle and plato plato and going straight through the great european canon of literature and art and straight up to the founders vision in the united states and it's a unique institution a unique set of leaders and most important a really unique student body i've only seen a student body like it At our military academies, frankly. And that's West Point, the Air Force Academy, and of course, our great academy in Annapolis, our Naval Academy. This is Lee Habib, and this is our American Stories. We'll be back to close out the hour. More on the Wright Brothers. This day in history, the first in flight. This is Lee Habib, and this is our American Stories. And for the hour, the Wright brothers, the first men in flight, their story told by David McCulloch, added insight by Neil Armstrong. And to summarize this uniquely American story, again, they were do-it-yourselfers. They were risk-takers. As McCulloch had told us earlier, these guys grew up, they didn't have indoor plumbing. They had no telephone, none of that. But they had books, books aplenty, and the father insisted that they read and read about everything. And he insisted that they learn how to use the English language. He insisted that their handwriting be not only legible, that their vocabulary was wide, their use of verbs, adjectives, and syntax, all of that. All as if they were having a magnificent English professor all through their lives, and this played a huge part in the success that they had. That's the thing about this family. They had not a stitch of Marxist economic determinism not a stitch of it in the right household and this was indeed the most uniquely American advantage and as McCulloch will point out this was the unique advantage of the 20th century the early 20th century and as he put it when a person's dreams were bound by no social class these guys were raised to believe they could do anything even fly. Dayton itself had a lot to do with the success, it turns out, the location. And one wouldn't normally think of Dayton as a hotbed of innovation, but David McCulloch says otherwise.
9: It was a little bit like the Silicon Valley of today, uh, in that uh, well, most of the industrial cities of the country were, because all kinds of new things were coming into being. Uh, the telephone the light bulb, the elevator, uh, it, it the, the cash register, and uh, it was a very positive time. The country, there was no, we weren't at war. We were about to build the Panama Canal. Uh, we, we had no national debt. We had a national surplus, and um, to have been in Dayton, Ohio. If you were mechanical, mechanically inclined or interested in mechanical or industrial or scientific innovation, was to be in the hotbed of where it was all happening. So they were, it was a renaissance time, if you will.
0: It was a renaissance time, if you will. And again, there were no limitations at this time. One more interesting fact about the state of Ohio and space travel and flight. Again, here's David.
9: Neil Armstrong and the Wright brothers, the first to fly and the first to land on the moon, came from the same section of Ohio, southwestern Ohio. To me, that's fascinating. And the John Glenn came from Ohio. There's something about that state, and I truly mean this, That's there's a lot of life going on there, a lot of the number of presidents from Ohio, the number of Admirable people in many fields from Ohio.
0: And so what did this writer, this historian, who spent so much time thinking about, writing about, visiting all the locations, because it turns out McCulloch is a, a scout. He goes out and he scouts and he sniffs and he visits. What did he most admire about the Wright brothers?
9: I think I feel I have to admire them for what they did. What they accomplished, and um, and admire their tenacity, their courage, their their loyalty, all of those things. But do they have to be flawless? Oh heavens, no! Perfection is boring, and one thing a writer doesn't want to be is boring. Uh, and um, uh, the, and they're human, and subject to all the the. Uh, weaknesses and strengths of of human nature and human uh, the human experience. I history is human it's about people when in the course of human events our our uh, great declaration begins that's and the key the operative word there is human.
0: McCulloch also had this to say inside the book and I'm going to quote character counts again and again. These guys weren't in it to become famous or to become rich. They were in it to just do right. Their attention to detail and their, well, they didn't only like the limelight, did not like the limelight. They tried to avoid it at all costs. But eventually they did fly. They broke every record that had ever been broken, including many of their own, over and over. This, by the way, was the most distinctly American idea. These brothers were in the end hobbyists, driven not by fame or wealth, but by the challenge of it, by the thing itself. Quote, if we had been interested in invention with the idea of profit, Orville Wright told his first biographer in 1939, we most assuredly would have tried something in which the chances for success were much brighter. You see, we did not expect in the beginning to go beyond gliding. Orville continued, quote, even later, we didn't suppose the airplane could ever be practical outside the realm of sport. It was the sport of the thing that appealed to Will and me. The question was not of money from flying, but how we could get money enough to keep on entertaining ourselves with flying. Fantastic. Now that is uniquely American. Perhaps McCulloch's most revealing story about the nature of the Wright brothers centered around their early days in Kitty Hawk. They were two unknown tinkerers far from home, testing their ideas in the sloping dunes of North Carolina, The locals didn't know what to think. Most thought the brothers were a bit bat-crazy. Their days were filled with setback after setback and very minor advances. The work was dangerous. The infestation of those bugs I talked about before, unfathomable. And yet the men, McCulloch points out, look back at those years with the greatest of fondness. Quote, The odd thing is that after years or even months, the two brothers would talk about that time on Kitty Hawk as the absolute best times of their lives. Because they were in the midst of their work, their love of work, their passion for work, their joy in their work. There's a great lesson to be learned for all of us. And those lessons may be the best things we learn from this great American story. That you don't need fancy college degrees or social status to achieve great things. That work is fun, that money isn't everything, And that there is something unique about this thing we call the American character. And we want to thank the people at Hillsdale College for our This Day in Histories. All of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. And I wanted to end with this because I wrote an essay with Mike Levin about this uh, several years ago, about Samuel Langley. Because as you heard earlier, there was this rush to get to flight, and the American government, through the Smithsonian and the War Department, were trying to get to to space and, and man flight first. As again, you can imagine, the Germans, the French, whoever got to air first had superiority militarily. These were grave consequences. This wasn't about just getting people to get around faster. This was dominance in military fashion. So we had spent a lot of money, the U.S. government, to get there. And the War Department had failed. Indeed, here is a note that the War Department wrote to the public after the just tragic performance of Langley's two attempts at manned flight. And again, they were trying to solve the problem of propulsion. That's why they were trying to pull that plane, that aircraft, up on a tow on the Potomac River, and why it just went straight down. The Wrights were working on the problem of balance, and they were bicycle mechanics. So they had the advantage, even though they were smaller. Here's the War Department's final words. Uh, we are still far from the ultimate goal, and it would seem as if years of constant work and study by experts, together with the expenditures of thousands of dollars, would still be necessary before we can hope to produce an apparatus, a practical utility along these lines. In other words, hey, we brainiacs can't do it. Nobody can do it. And only a few days later, up in the air goes the Wright brothers. Well, life doesn't end there. As you can imagine, who are these stupid bicycle mechanics to show us up? And here's where the story gets really interesting. Though the Wrights beat Langley and the Smithsonian and the American government to to flight, the race didn't end there. Powerful interests vied for the patent to this revolutionary invention and, more important, for the credit. With Smithsonian approval, a well-known aviation expert modified Langley's aerodrome and in 1914 made some short flights designed to bypass the Wright brothers' patent application and to vindicate the Smithsonian and its fearless leader, Samuel Langley. That's right, the Smithsonian's brain trust couldn't beat the bicycle shop owners fair and square so they used their power to steal the credit. And then they used their bully pulpit to rewrite history. In 1914, America's most esteemed historical museum cooked the books and displayed the Smithsonian-funded Langley Aerodrome in its museum as the first manned aircraft heavier than air and capable of flight. Orville Wright accused the Smithsonian of falsifying the historical record. He was so upset that he sent the 1903 Kitty Hawk Flyer, the plane that made aviation history, to a science museum in London. But the truth is a stubborn thing. And in 1942, after much embarrassment, the Smithsonian recanted its false claims about the aerodrome. The British Museum returned the Wright Brothers' historic flyer to America, and the Smithsonian put it on display in their Arts and Industries building on December 17, 1948, 45 years to the day after the aircraft's only flights. A grand government deception was at last foiled by facts and fate. And there you have it, folks, the full story of the Wright Brothers, first in air, first in flight. The hobbyists beat the experts. Once again, this is Our American Story.